Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. The title of today's show is Mental Biology. And not only is this the a new book by today's guest, Professor Clem from Texas A&M, but it also brings up one of the perennial questions in science and philosophy, and that is, what do we mean when we talk about the mind and the brain? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Does the brain come from the mind or the mind from the brain? Is the mind only an illusion, an off-gas from this gray matter? we call the brain? Does it have a role to play in who we are and who we can become? And again, this is one of the great mysteries in philosophy and science. We're going to tackle it today. As I mentioned, my guest I'm happy to have on the show, the Senior Professor of Neuroscience, Professor R. W. R. Clem of Texas A&M. He's the author of over 500 publications, including 16 books. And his new book, which I mentioned, Mental Biology, The New Science of How Brain and Mind Relate. Welcome to the show, Professor. Yeah, Philip, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to your questions, and we'll try to answer them as best I can. Okay, well, let's, okay, well, let's, let's get right at it a little bit here. Now, for those who, do, who may not understand what the controversy is with mind and brain and neuroscience, why don't you... Why don't you give us sort of an overview of why this this topic of mind and the brain and how they relate is so important in your field? Well, it's important in a lot of fields. <laughs> yeah. But but actually the controversy originated formally, I suppose, in the early 1600s by René Descartes, who was a famous mathematician who, by the way, created Cartesian geometry. Right. But Descartes was also a philosopher, and, and actually a religious philosopher. And, and he argued that the brain and mind are separate. I, I suppose if they'd known about electromagnetic waves in that, those days, he, he would have thought of the brain as some sort of antenna that picks up mind, which is outside the head. Right. Right. And, and so that's, that's the famous... You know, Descartes blamed for a lot of things, but um, he's he's also the I think therefore I am fella, so he does lo- he deserves a lot of credit for that. And also, as you mentioned, he he's one of the um, what what is it again that with uh, Cartesian geometry? Yeah, Cartesian you know, geometry. And that sort of thing. Right, right, right. And so, in any event, so this problem has has continued through the ages, and in in modern neuroscience what is what is the orthodox view of this the role between mind and brain what is the what is the mainstream view the mainstream view is that Descartes was wrong right the brain and mind are the same functional uh, structure that that mind exists in inside the circuitry of the brain yeah so so now how now 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 we get to a 
an important point here, which is let's let's define the terms because I think most people would use brain and mind interchangeably. And maybe one's a metaphor and one's not a metaphor, and sometimes it's hard to figure out which is what. But how? what is the difference between what orthodox or mainstream neuroscience calls the mind and what is the brain? If, are there different functions that they have, or is, or is the brain simply another word for the mind and vice versa? I, I actually, I don't regard either one of them as a metaphor. Okay. The, the brain clearly is real. Right. And and if the mind exists as patterns of uh, electrical activity within the brain, then that's real too. You know, that's not an imagined thing. That's that's real. You can actually record it with amplifiers. Yeah, I see. I see. So. So therefore, now there is this there's this notion that the the mind is an epiphenomenon, which is a big word for for something that I'm not sure what it is, but it's some it's something like uh, an or an emergent property of the brain. I I know that's what most scientists say, and I don't accept that. Okay, now what 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 is that? Why don't you explain? What? what epiphenomenon? No, what what does it mean to say? <laughs> That that the mind is a is an emergent property of the brain. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's where the reason. Okay. I don't accept it. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was, that's what I kind of thought because I see that a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things emerging, uh, in in, in modern science emerging out of other things. That's, and, like, that's like saying your your uh, <laughs> when your adrenal gland secretes adrenaline, the adrenaline is an emergent property of the adrenal gland. Yeah. You know that, that that, in my opinion, is a foolish way to think about it. Yeah. Well. So. So. What is the difference between your view and the and the emergent property line of thinking? Uh, my view is that mind is the property of brain, not not some vague ephemeral emergent thing. It, it is a fundamental property of brain. When brain is doing its thing, it's expressing mind. Even when a live brain is functioning. Yeah, no. Producing mind, just like an adrenal gland is producing adrenaline. Yeah, I think I think one of the let me try to articulate one of the main objections against what I'm going to call the materialistic uh, view of the mind, and this is it, it goes something like this. Which is, let's say you have you you're watching a home team uh, come from behind to win a basketball game, or you fall in love, or you're inspired by some Tchaikovsky symphony, and there is this uplifting feeling that you have this this in, whether it's inspiration or whether it's some kind of spiritual. Um, enlightenment and then you look over and then you look at the pictures of the brain and it's just like well how do you translate that kind of inner sensation this 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 create this this uh sensation of falling in love or being inspired how do you how do you translate that sort of ephemeral poetic feeling into splotches on a screen and I, I, that's that's sort of one way I, I've always viewed the problem here 
is that where where is the is is there supposed to be a correlation between those those feelings those sensations like the 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 creative moment is there supposed to be a correlation in the brain? Okay, you've raised two issues. Okay, as I see it. One is I'm not sure that that's a, an appropriate analogy. Okay. Uh, second is that actually that problem philosophical problem or logic problem is what caused me to, to to reframe the idea of mind into what I call three minds first, first uh, is is what I call non-conscious mind this, this is what your spinal reflexes do you mean there's no way that you can consciously access control over a spinal reflex or a brainstem reflex for that matter then there's what uh, used to be called and still is called subconscious mind. This is the kind of mind which sometimes pops ideas into your consciousness from out of the blue, so to speak. And it's in the subconscious mind is always doing things. You're just not consciously aware of it. And and this is the fundamental thing that Freud, for instance, and Jung and those guys focused on. And, and then thirdly, of course, is conscious mind. And, and the analogy you gave seems to apply only to conscious mind. Now, now consciousness is, a, is another issue. I mean, uh, we, we're still trying to figure out what consciousness is. But uh, thinking about it in terms of three minds uh, makes it easier to appreciate the fact that all three minds are actually brain function. Yeah, I saw the in your book you do talk about the three minds and I want to ask you that but but it doesn't it doesn't address the well, well first of all there's a there's a threshold question about there's really not three minds what what you're it's not as if there's three separate entities well, yeah, there's a, no boundary right 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 it's not as if you're walking around with three heads or something or or or, or three different brains as there would be in, in maybe a Steve Martin movie no, or something they're seamlessly integrated right right but but you use it as as an illustration to separate the functions of the brain yes right yes. right okay so how does separating it into three functions help with this dilemma of of finding the the uh, materialistic correlate. Okay, I, I, I begin with what we know about non-conscious mind. In, in decades of study, most of what we know about the brain was learned, by the way, on unconscious mind, spinal reflexes and what neurons do in the peripheral nerves and that sort of thing. And that's clearly materialistic. There's just Those principles are clearly materialistic, and, and they presumably apply to all the other functions of the brain in their subconscious functions and conscious functions. Okay. Unless you're going to speculate that conscious mind doesn't use these materialistic processes of nerve impulses, which well, I think is, is not a valid way to think about it. Well, I mean, I, I have my own view of this, but and we can get to that later, but right now I'm just trying to understand, for example, is it neuroscience's findings that or your your opinion that every internal mental state from or from uh, fear and creativity to falling in love to being inspired that you that you can look to one of these three minds and find a physical correlate 
Yes, I think most okay. neuroscientists would agree with that. Okay. So therefore... Well, they, the, may, they may not want to frame the discussion the way I framed it, but but I, I think almost all neuroscientists think of of mind as neural activity, okay, electrical so, activity. Okay, so why don't you n- now try to or I know you can do this, why don't you describe what's different, What what is different about your spin on this that you believe breaks with the mainstream uh, perspective? Uh, I suppose it's that uh, I've tried to focus on consciousness, and, and I'll be the first to concede that neither I nor anybody else really understands what consciousness is. It, it's the holy grail of science as far as I'm concerned. Well, I've tried to explain consciousness in terms of what I and other neuroscientists agree are the mechanisms that produce non-conscious mind. Yeah. Well, it's... Yeah, go ahead. Namely, patterns of nerve impulses flowing around in nerve circuits. And, And presumably, when you become conscious, you may have different patterns of nerve impulses occupying different circuits or doing it in a different way than they do when you are non-conscious, as, for instance, if you're anesthetized. Right. It sort of reminds me, and I I would agree, this is one of the most difficult problems in science, and I know that you, your last chapter in your book, you talk about the Big Bang and about the origin of life and and dark matter and some of these other great mysteries, and I'm always, I'm always sort of encouraged when leading scientists such as yourself leave room for mystery and miracles because there's there there remains so many unanswered questions uh, in science and of course in biology with the with the origin of life being among them but consciousness is a big one because it's it's something it's something that I think you put in your book it's something that you you know it when you experience it but but trying to figure out how it came from anything whether it's the brain or whether it's uh, the primordial soup or the Big Bang is not the easiest thing in the world to do because it's such a it's 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 basically saying where did awareness come from? Yeah, right. well, my my take on it is that whatever the explanation is, the parsimonious explanation is that consciousness must be using some of the same principles of operation that non-conscious mind is using. Okay, now, Otherwise, you just have to invent some other thing, like Descartes did, something floating around out in space that your brain somehow is an antenna that can detect it. So what, what, do, you, what do you mean by using... The, can you elaborate upon what you just said? You said that you have to, to assume that the conscious mind is using some of the same circuitry as the non-conscious mind. What do you mean by that? Well, of, of course... The brain is a, is a neural network. It's a right. network of circuits, right? And and they can and and they are uh, uh, anatomically connected, and 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 uh, the connections. Uh, some of them are hardwired, inflexible, and others are uh, flexible. They can be recruited into certain functions and not recruited into other functions, or even. A same circuit may perform different functions depending on how it got commandeered by other circuits. And and my take is that in consciousness what happens is that these circuits are 
connected in a different way, functionally connected in a different way. Uh, and, and, and the timing, we haven't talked about timing relationships, but part of my book's explanation is the timing of the activity in different parts of the brain, interconnected parts of the brain, uh, change the brain function enormously. In fact, there, there are many studies, and I cite some of them, that show that uh, the connectivity patterns of oscillations in the brain uh, change their synchrony, their degrees of synchrony among different parts of the, of the brain, depending on what the brain is doing. Yeah, so the brain substance hasn't changed, but the, the functional properties of it has changed in, in terms of how the circuits are being recruited and timed for different functions. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Professor W.R. Clem of Texas A&M University about his new book, Mental Biology, and we're talking about this, this difficult dilemma of how consciousness arose and what it is. And I guess, Professor, one of the... It's still... It's still uh, remains a big mystery uh, well let me let me let me put it this way it's one thing to say the brain is there and it's a complicated organ the most complicated that there is and it's uh, incredibly sophisticated with the neurons and the synapses and the different sections and and you use uh, that term um, cir- uh, circuit impulse patterns CIP and to say well let's let's try to use what we know to explain or to set a basis for explaining consciousness but would right. but wouldn't you say that there is still a big gap that well it, but yes of course yeah, yeah i mean yeah. And, and i don't think anybody yeah uh, feels comfortable in in saying uh, what consciousness is yeah. Other than to say we're aware that we're aware and we feel that we feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it reminds me, I mean, a lot of people uh, in this area don't, uh, have not read Immanuel Kant, and I know you cite him in your book, and it's it's really, you know, he was, most people don't read Kant because his books are very difficult, let's face it. Uh, he's, he's actually written... Yeah, but he's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's written some really... Uh, a couple approachable books, but he's he has probably had a greater influence upon the the mo- the modern mind than almost any other thinker. I mean, Descartes obviously also had a big influence in Newton, and we can go on and on and on. But but in terms of really being uh, influential, you know, Kant said that you know that the mind structures reality. And one of the things he said that I think modern science forgets, frankly, is that he said that space itself, you know, three-dimensional space is a property of the mind because we can't experience, we can't have an experience without three dimensions. And I, I raise that because it's really a, a mystery on where, where this awareness, where this... Uh, be a, a you know the being here-ness came from and it's but it's encouraging that folks like you are taking a different perspective on it and are trying to are are trying to make sense out of it 
I, I we do understand awareness somewhat. There are two issues. Right. We, we do understand what awareness is, but we don't understand what awareness of awareness is. Okay, and okay, so what do you mean by that? Well, awareness is simply when a brain detects something. Right. And you can record the nerve impulses coming in through the eye or whatever the case may be, and the brain is, is thus detected, and you can say the brain therefore is aware of it. Now, this may well be unconscious or non-conscious awareness, and, and the magical thing about consciousness is you may become aware that you have detected it, the stimulus or whatever. Right, right. Well, you know, my, my position is that if, if patterns of nerve impulses are used to make the detection, awareness, for instance, then why can't patterns of nerve impulses be used to create awareness of awareness? I see. I see. Well, getting to the awareness part of this first, I mean, there was something, every time I hear um, somebody explain the process by which the brain translates whatever really out there into a picture of the world, uh, it really is an amazing story. And you go through it in your book, and, uh, you know, the, the notion of, you know, light coming into the eyes, and it's goes into the brain the brain uh, converts these light signals or whatever into the image of a tree I think you use I think you use the example of a tree in your book I, I yeah, sort of, I, yeah. and and you know one of the things that really amazes me though is that why does everybody see the same tree because their brains are wired to detect it in the same way okay the wire okay every you know, the eye and the pathways are, are the same in everybody. Okay. But but the conscious awareness of it now may be a different matter, because uh, how we consciously perceive a tree may be affected by our past learning experiences, by our emotions at the at the time, and, and other things. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So so for example, some people like a um, a lumberman might be looking at a tree as as you know as wood to cut down where a nature a nature lover would be, would be. Right. <laughs> yeah yeah so that's one way to that's one way to look at it so now you use a really intriguing concept in this book and I don't know whether you whether you introduced it in this book or or your prior books but you use this concept of avatars of the brain yeah, which I thought was really neat. Why don't you? One, you. I, 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 I was pleased that <laughs> well, to recognize that that's a possibility because it helps to explain a lot of things. Well, it really, you know, it's 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 ironic in a way because I mentioned I mentioned to you in our little chat before that you know we have all sorts of people on the show from from all walks of life because I'm trying to trying to open open minds to different uh, concepts and there's a book called Avatars of Consciousness. Oh really? I didn't know that. That was written by a mystic. She it's she's a it's she's an opposite end of the spectrum, but it's called Avatars of Consciousness, and you know. Did you arrive at the same conclusion I did. No, it's completely different. It's oh, okay. completely different. Well, it's actually there's probably some similarities, but hers, uh, you know, mysticism is completely on the opposite side of the spectrum from modern neuroscience but I thought it was interesting that you both chose the same term but now let's let me I'd like to have you uh, 
explain what you mean by the avatars of the brain. And I, I want to put a plug in here for Professor Clem because his book is very readable. And if you're looking for a book uh, that walks you through neuroscience in, in an understandable way, you know, mental biology is, is, is really is really a good book to do that. Uh, you don't get lost in quote-unquote jargon. With that little pitch for you, which was, by the way, was purely voluntarily, voluntary on my part, why don't you explain what this brain avatar, avatar of the brain is? Okay, well, thank you for appreciating my writing style. <laughs> uh, now, the idea of avatar is that uh, that's the way I think about consciousness. You know, in in my view, which is is not universally held, by the way, is that consciousness enables us to do certain things that we could not otherwise do, and and so the question arises: Well, how could the brain do that? I mean, um, if if the brain is is creating a consciousness that can work on its behalf. Why isn't that sort of like an avatar? That's that's what computer avatars do. Uh, you, the person, control the computer avatar, and it's out there doing things that maybe you can't do. Suppose the avatar is a robot, for instance, and and you may be influencing that robot, but the robot can do things you can't do. And, and so, in a parallel sort of way, maybe the brain constructs an avatar, a consciousness avatar that does things for it that it can't otherwise do. Now that, that of course introduces the, the subject that uh, maybe uh, as some people say, consciousness can't do anything. And I, I can discuss that with you if you want to, but I, I think the, con- the consciousness does a lot of things and it's sort of self-evident that it does. And it's working on behalf of, of the brain, which creates it. So, so the avatar... Uh, and I take it this this is a metaphor. This one is a metaphor, right? <laughs> well, no, I think it's a little more than a metaphor. I think it's a physical reality. And by that, I'm, I'm saying that the avatar exists as a new state of circuit impulse patterns that are that is okay. unique. Okay. And and um, this new state is consciousness it's real it's not not a metaphor okay so this this is this is the part of the brain that is aware that it is aware yeah except i wouldn't call it the part of the brain because it's functional okay okay you know, it's a process, i see what you're saying okay 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 so okay and so it's sort of but it's it sounds a little bit like an emergent property to me it sounds. Well, that, that we, <laughs> it's a, you can think of it that way if you want. To. It sounds like it sounds like something that arises from operations in the brain, and but it is a brain operation. Okay. You know, we go back to what we said earlier about emergent properties. It, 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 yeah, I suppose you could say it emerges, but it is a property of the brain. It's a brain state. It didn't just um, come out of nowhere. What led you? What? What is your driving um, purpose for going in this direction, Professor? Because you, you've been doing well, this well, for... everybody wants to explain consciousness. Some yeah, okay. all neuroscientists do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I joined the crowd. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's, well, it's nice having an original perspective on things, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned a, a, a topic that I do want to touch upon, which is 
whether consciousness does anything. And, and this is something that I think is, is very important because some folks in your field, I believe, don't really give a, much of a role to consciousness, or they basically say it's some kind of off-gas, some kind of ephemeral thing out there. In fact, it's, it's becoming sort of a fad to think of consciousness like uh, an audience in a theater, that all it does is, is just um, uh, visual, gets, gets to see some of what's going on in, in, the, in the... I don't subscribe to that at all. What, what's the basis for the passive viewer perspective on consciousness? What's, what's, the, what's the scientific you basis? Mean, uh, in terms of what it does? How, right. How do neuroscientists who ascribe to, to the mainstream view, what leads them to believe that consciousness is simply a passive observer? Well, they don't have any evidence for it, and yeah. I don't have any good evidence for my view either, for that matter. Well, but uh, my, my view is based on, on what I perceive to be reason. If you think about it, one of the things that appears to be done by consciousness is that it makes things explicit so that you can analyze it explicitly and, and make decisions in the full light of consciousness. Which, uh, and, and there are a couple of other things that uh, I think consciousness does. For, for instance, if you wanted to memorize something, it, it is much easier if you consciously use mnemonics. And, and you know, that's abundantly proved. So I don't know why anybody would <laughs> right. uh, pretend that that's not true. It is true. And you couldn't do it as well. You can't memorize things as well if you're unconscious. Even though it's true, it, uh, I will concede that the unconscious mind can form memories, but it can't do it nearly as well as if you are consciously using tricks and gimmicks and strategies and things of that sort to uh, enhance the memorizing uh, effect of yeah. property. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. I could see that. I could see that. That makes a lot of sense. This is Philip Mirton, and this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Professor Clem, Texas A&M University, uh, in the a senior professor of neuroscience. He's got a new book called Mental Biology, and I like to the avatars of consciousness or the brain avatars are really a interesting, really interesting concept. I but to me it's. This whole issue, and also uh, what consciousness does, because to me it's related to your discussion on free will, and I I think this is a really a fascinating topic, and I I'm I, I commend you for for raising it because we don't we don't <laughs> have we don't have a lot of people who who in the science well usually in the scientific field when you read something about free will someone's telling you it doesn't exist. And, and that's that's sort of the the long and short of it. And for those who have studied up on free will, it's one of the most fascinating topics in philosophy, and more so maybe than science. But it's something at some point in time everybody has to deal with. Now, what what is your perspective on free will and, and what this means for your view of consciousness? You know what astonishes me most about many of my colleagues is that they, they leapt to this conclusion based on, on one experiment back in the 80s by Benjamin Libet. And, and I explained that in, in, in the book. But 
but the, and and we don't have time to point out all the flaws with this experiment, but it's loaded with flaws, and and I'm not the only one who said so or demonstrated what those flaws are, and yet the, many, maybe most neuroscientists have glommed on to this piece of research, and 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 it's been confirmed by others in different ways, but it, all of the confirming research has the same flaws, <laughs> and, and and nonetheless they they have uh, incorporated this into dogma, which they claim is evidence that free will doesn't exist. Now, I, w I will say this, that I don't have a good experimental design that proves that free will does exist. Yeah. And there are some philosophers who say this isn't even a scientific question. And yeah. certainly nobody's figured out a foolproof way to test the issue. Yeah. And, well, and so for scientists to dogmatically jump up and down saying free will does not exist is not scientific in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it, tend, it sounds a little bit like uh, a, pre, uh, a, a preconception to me. And, and let me, let me phrase the, frame the issue for listeners who may not be st uh, reading up that much on free will, but it's, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like uh, in, in one of the crude or more basic ways to articulate it if if you reach the conclusion that we are that we're only our genes that our genes determine what we are uh, and that we can never change our gene makeup uh, that and that we are really maybe robots or computers that are programmed to do something or else we don't have any control over our lives or over the decisions we make. Example being a, a criminal who says that, well, I, I was forced to steal from the bank, to rob the bank because it's in my genes. I was determined to do that. I had no control. It's a very, very simplistic example. But, you know, I, I frankly have never... I don't know what the big problem is with free will, frankly, because to me, there's it, our entire society is based upon free will, about responsibility. And, you know, you said something earlier that I, I want to underscore that I'm going to show my cards a little bit on this, which is that unless it's mathematically certain that we don't have free will, I'm going to live as if I do. Because, because, and and, and to me, to me, to me, it is it's 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 so. If you want to convince yourself that you don't have free will, then go ahead and convince yourself. Then you paralyze uh, yourself. Right, right, right. Go ahead, and you know we could say the same thing about all sorts of things, and it, and it, it it sort of revolves around the concept of dogma. You know, if you want to keep repeating something to yourself. Um, like like you'll never make it in life, or you'll never get a raise, or you'll never get admitted to some university. Then fine, but but until someone comes out and and with, with a mathematically certain proof that we we can't make anything of our lives, that we don't have free will, I'm going the free will route. And and so so um, now, what does your perspective on free will mean for your view of of the avatar or consciousness, I may not have framed that the right way, but 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 okay. putting but but uh, but putting this together for us. Why don't you put it together a little bit about wh how you come down on this when you put your concepts together? 
Okay, before I do that, though, okay. I, I want I would like to address what you said about genes okay, right. and 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 the prevailing view up until ten years ago or so that that we are our genes. No, that's not right. We are how our genes are expressed, and now geneticists are revolutionizing the field of genetics by focusing on environmental and mental controls of gene expression. If genes are not expressed, that is to say, if they're not active, they're not doing anything. Right. And, 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 and genes, depending on which genes you're talking about, fluctuate between being expressed and repressed and so forth. And, and those, they're called epigenetic influences, determine uh, your functions. You need body organ, and that includes the brain, too. Now, to get to your question about uh, uh, how the avatar fits into this scheme, uh, first let me focus on subconscious mind. It, it, it's well established that many of the things that we do are reflex-like. You know, we're just, we have certain drives and, and prejudices and biases and unthinking behaviors that are generated unconsciously in 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 and that in fact is one of the reasons why a lot of people say we don't have any free will because they know and they can prove that a lot of our behavior is 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 auto an automatic automatism um, but if you have a, an avatar a conscious avatar which is interacting with this subconscious mind and, and the avatar, because it is an avatar, has more degrees of freedom than the subconscious mind does. And it's interacting with the subconscious mind. And, and it can tap into what the subconscious mind is pushing you to do, and it can veto it or alter the course of action or, or you know, modify it in, in a more appropriate, behaviorally uh, appropriate way. And, and so what I'm saying basically is that maybe most of our behavior is uh, subconscious, but we do have a degree of free will at, at, at a minimum. And, of course, the, the other thing is that obviously people exercise their limited amount of free will to different degrees. Right, as, as you know from a lot of people, you know. Right, right, exactly. I mean, there. It's really. I mean, sort of a sad commentary. Uh, and I don't mean to put the pharma pharmaceutical industry on trial here, but but there tends to be a relationship between people who sort of think that it's all determined by the genes. I was I was born that way. I don't have a choice. And and. And the pharmaceutical industry, which which tends to encourage people to take pills or something to to eliminate something that maybe is part of their decision, you know, a decision they've made. And I'm not saying that all pharmaceuticals are bad or the or whatever, but but there's a relationship I think between this this emphasis on being determined by our bodies and and our dependence upon drugs, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing. I'm sort of off topic on that, but I think that there is a relationship there. Now, now the a couple interesting, a couple additional interesting parts of your book that I, I want to touch upon. You criticize what is called a a robocyst. I'm, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. What, is, what are these are people that uh, this is the the same dogma that believe that we're just robots. 
Yeah, yeah, I, roboticist. Yeah, yeah. We believe that our brain is like a robot. Yeah. Well, what well, do you see any hope in convince in in changing the the mainstream there? I mean, where do you think that you're on the forefront, or, or are you still an outlier here? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's now the other the other part of this that is really important, I think, is is figuring out um, whether. Uh, where evolution fits in because it's it's another feature of our modern scientific worldview where where um i i really think that too often scientists and biologists they use evolution as sort of the god of the gaps or the all-purpose explanatory mechanism they just say well the selection pressures did this that and the other i mean do you think that evolution itself created the avatars and and the brain yeah, yeah, yeah. i do uh yeah. and and what and the reason i say that is that it, it's pretty clear that to be conscious you, you have to have a, a a sophisticated architecture in your cerebral cortex the, right. the outer part of your brain is is where uh consciousness is mediated and and lower animals don't have this uh, the human neocortex is unique. It's got six distinct layers and, of cells uh, that you don't see in lower animals. And, uh, and of course, we have more of it, too, than right. other animals do. But their architecture is different also. So I, I'm saying that consciousness uh, arises because of uh, unique circuit impulse patterns, and that's made possible because we have unique circuits in our cortex. And and that's an evolved thing. You can see a graded development of the neocortex as you as you move up the scale of, of uh, mammals, from armadillos to uh, dogs and cats to primates and then to humans. You can see a progressive development of the architecture of this cortex. Well, the problem that I have uh, with with using evolution as the... And, and I really mean Darwinian evolution, because uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt some form of evolution occurred. But my problem with using evolution here is it surely looks like there's an end in view. It surely looks like awareness, consciousness is a goal. and But that is off limits to Darwinianism. And let me be clear, you know, strict neo-Darwinianism, you don't, there's no end in view those mutations are random. Yeah, natural selection or selection pressure, whatever they're calling it these days, is supposed to select the traits that uh, enhance survivability. But it it just looks too much like there's an end in view, and that's and I I so I part no, company. No, evolutionary theory predicts there is no end in view. It's right. Progressive. Right. 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 That's what well, I'm. It saying. can be regressive too. You know, right. at some point, for instance, humans may become so aggressive and so forth they destroy the species. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I just yeah, but I just think that it is it is too ironic or too coincidental for me. To think that, okay, on one hand you say that evolution doesn't have an end in view. Okay, that's fine. We, we are really good scientists. We just said that. But on the other hand, where we are today is with this incredibly complex brain being aware of, of miraculous universe. 
it's like to me it's like it's like saying that the big bang uh with with the random particles floating around that's that all you need is that is those mindless particles veering in and out and exploding and you could explain the wonder of the world i mean to explain the wonder of the world you have to understand the laws of chemistry and physics right and and, and no, nobody knows where that came from. Right, right. Well, that's, yeah. yeah. But all evolution uh, arose and is arising today because of the laws of chemistry and physics. So the fundamental thing are these laws. Right, right. Well, you see, the this is this is a really a, um, this is a rich topic because you said two things, half of which I agree with, because uh, the the scientific mind or the scientific community does assume the laws of nature as given there is there is this talk about a multiverse where the laws might be different and i view that as complete speculation as i think about 50 percent of cosmologists do but you still have the laws of nature and that that instills integrates order structure into everything and so you you have to you sort of have to assume the regularity of the laws of nature, the 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 ordered structure of the DNA molecule, all these things. Okay, once you assume all that, now now you let uh, evolution do its thing. But to me, uh, there's an ordering mechanism buried buried in the equations. I mean, I guess that's one way to put it. This is Philip Merton. This is conversations beyond science and religion. We're speaking with Professor W. R. Clem the author of Mental Biology, The New Science of How the Mind and Brain Relate. I I want to emphasize something that I I didn't give enough attention to when you mentioned epigenics, uh, because that is an incredibly exciting part of modern biology. For those who stopped reading biology books in about the year 2000 or so, if you if you would read books by um, say uh, Dawkins or Ernest Meyer, the, uh, they just slaughtered anyone who would think that that the environment played any role in our makeup. And it's uh, to me it's a very exciting development uh, that to say that the environment and as you put in your book, uh, what we think also determines what we are. Right. I mean, I think you put that in your yeah, book, absolutely. which I think is an incredibly exciting uh, part. It, it's really, it's really a good development because it, to me, it shows that there's hope and that there's, there's maybe um, something better we can make of all this. And with that, I want to move to the your your last part of your book. You you talk about mysteries and about how there has to be room for for accepting miracles or, 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 or for accepting the, un, the unknown in the science. I, I'd like you to speak a little bit about this cause, because clearly you, you, have, you have thought a lot about it and you, you're coming at this from a little different perspective. Uh, and I just want to say that there's a lot of scientists who, um, who are best-selling authors who really give the impression that there are no mysteries. That science, if they haven't figured it all out, they soon will, uh, and that there's really no, and that there's really no room 
to uh, you know that nothing is really a miracle. If there's a miracle, it's something that science will soon explain. I like I like you just to talk about uh, some of the ideas you put in, in the last chapter of your book to give us a little per, a little bit of a perspective on where you're coming from. Uh, okay, actually, I, I didn't invent these ideas. Most most scientists agree, or at least certainly most uh, astrophysicists agree, and most physicists agree, that most of what we call nature is a minuscule part of the universe. In other words, what we call matter and energy has been calculated and, and apparently agreed upon by the physical scientists to be only 4.6% of everything that's in the universe. So what's this 96% stuff that's out there? It's dark matter and dark energy. And, and, and we don't have all time to go into what these things are. <laughs> and that's a good thing because we actually don't know what these things are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's good we don't have time because we don't know what they are anyways. <laughs> and and, uh, and the, uh, dark matter, for instance, uh, is areas in space that astronomers have detected that are bending light. Uh, with massive gravitational force. And, of course, the force is depending on how, how big the mass is. And they calculate that it's humongous. And yet you don't see anything. Yeah. So they call that dark matter. Right. And, and the dark energy component, which has been calculated by the physicists, is even greater. And they, and they get that uh, conclusion from observing, uh, which was done many decades ago, as a matter of fact, that the universe is expanding... Uh, and it's accelerating. Yes. Something is pushing the galaxies apart at increasing speeds. Well, you know, to push things away, you got to have energy, right? Right. Well, and it's increasing. So where's that coming from? In any case, it's in, an enormous amount of energy, and we know nothing about it except that it has to exist. So here you are with 96% of the universe, which scientists admit is there, and yet they pretend it's irrelevant. Right. Yeah. Yes. And and to me, and we've had we've had actually had guests on the show talking about dark matter and dark energy and the multiverse and the the whole, you know, at the end of the day, what what we can't lose sight of. And I don't I don't care how how conservative of a scientist you are. There is there's so much we don't know. And it's it's what we don't know that drives the scientific enterprise, and I think that the the common person on the street may not realize uh, that that we have a long way to go before we understand much less, much less explain things like where consciousness came from or or what dark matters or dark energy or what is creating the order in the in the universe and it's this mystery that i think that we have to continue to to hold because otherwise we're sort of fooling ourselves i think we're fooling ourselves into thinking this is all this is all simple and i i i really like the way i really like the way you you ended it by by pointing out ended your book the last line of your book, I want to read it for the listener. It says, what we believe about our brain's odyssey governs how we live out that odyssey. And why don't you, why don't you speak a little bit about, about that, Professor? Because I think that really captures a lot of what we've been talking about here. 
Well, of course, the, I guess the, the obvious thing relates to free will. You know, if you believe, as you pointed out, if you believe you have free will, you'll live a more fulfilling life and, and not be so defeated and paralyzed. Uh, it also relates to religion. Um, you know, if you, if you um, uh, believe that some of these uh, unknowns in science are actually supernatural, uh, then you can accommodate religion. And, and supernatural, by the way, may just be natural things we don't yet understand. Right, right. And, and again, we're talking about 96% of the universe. Right, right. right. And, and that's, you know, when you think about it, and it's similar to your, your, three, your three minds. I mean, in so, sometimes we, we put these concepts in different cubby holes different categories like supernatural and the natural world and you and you draw and we draw these circles and we separate them as if there's never a con- there will never be a connection or maybe yeah, it's probably a mistake yeah i think it's a mistake i th- i think that you know i forget who said uh, i think arthur c clark the science fiction writers it said something like you know the inventions of the future t- t- today would seem like miracles to us, or something like that. And it's it's um, it's the quest of science to explain things rationally, uh, and not. You gave a cell phone to a caveman. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, right, these right these phones right now that that show YouTube and videos on them. And I mean, it's unbe- it's unbelievable. Do you think that I'm going to use the term religion? But do you think that there is a role for religion or spirituality in science, or do you think that they're always going to be at opposite ends of the spectrum? And I, I have to say that my question probably is, relates to the, our prior discussion on supernatural, but, but do you think that, uh, or put differently, do you think that there, a, a lot of scientists are really religious at heart? Um. I don't, I don't know, but polls show that, uh, well, uh, one of them I saw showed that about 65% of scientists are atheists. Yes. And in, in, in my, my take on that is that I, I really think scientists should be more open to spiritual matters. And, and, and that spirituality can inform science, and especially if you think of things like dark matter and dark energy as being spiritual, that's certainly a scientific issue. Yeah. And, and people of faith, on the other hand, need to start accommodating science into their belief systems. Yeah. To, to, and, and many faiths are starting to accommodate evolution, but they, they now have to start incorporating neuroscience. Yeah. And, and in fact, to help move that along, I've created a college course in neuroscience and religion. Wow. Well, that that's that's uh, that I that's it for the first time last fall, and I'm go- obviously going to do it again. Yeah, it was a success. Well, that's well, that's that's good. Well, you know, I I'm of the I'm of the view, and this is this is my own uh, belief system here, that both science and religion have to evolve. Yeah, both both of them both of them have to change. I mean, I I don't think, and I'm not I I'm not criticizing anyone's anyone's religion. I mean, I'd be happy to criticize someone's religion if I had more time, but I I don't think that's not my function here. But the um, I think too often we forget that the the stories from two thousand years ago may may be stories from two thousand years ago. We 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 may be it may be necessary to update 
update these stories and and look at things in, in a fresh light. And at the same at the same sense, you know, science sometimes they treat they they treat the religious uh, worldview as sort of a rag doll to like slap around uh, without without giving the benefit to some of the more advanced spiritualists, for example, who are who are much more open minded, who who don't believe in dogma, who don't believe the little the literal word word of the Bible, and and there is, as you point out, with dark matter and dark energy and quantum theory is another one. I mean, there is, and we're not, and I'm not saying that there's some kind of ephemeral spirit out there hovering, hovering over everything, but, but there is, there's got to be a room for both sides of the coin on the same planet, uh, and I, I hope that that's one of the things we'll see in the future is sort of a, I don't, I don't think there, I don't think there's going to be a peace. I think that there's going to be hopefully a, a uh, transcendence or a, uh, or a evolution of both. So that they meet, so they meet somewhere. That's what I'm trying to do in this uh, college course. Oh, that that sounds, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. Well, I want to, I want to, um, I take it, I take it. It's been a pop, a popular course. How many students do you have in that course? Well, I did, did it as an experiment last oh, fall. I see, I see, I see. And uh, I'm, I'm making it. Uh, I'm, I'm making videotaping the lectures, but but the student assignments are essays. I see. Um, that are uh, aimed at integrating neuroscience and, and religious ideas and showing how they inform each other. Okay. So In some cases, how they misinform. <laughs> so, so what? So what is a? So, for example, do you do something? I mean, is there? Uh, I know that. You talk about in your book. You talk about uh, neuro uh, EEG uh, detection of people in meditative states. Is, is things like that? Yeah, we cover things like that. Yeah, sure. yeah, that that's really cool. Well, I I think we're running out. Of, I think we run out of time here. So I want to thank you for I I think a, an original invigorating discussion about this fascinating field of neuroscience. We had the avatars of the brain. We have the three minds, and I think what we have, uh, Professor, someone like you who's looking at these things in a fresh light and trying to make sense of it without being burdened by some of the the mainstream dogma out there and I always think that that is a that is a good thing to give people new perspectives uh, and again the professor's book is Mental Biology The New Science of How the Brain and Mind Relate and that's Professor W.R. Clem and I recommend uh, everyone picking up this taking a look at it because it's, it's very educational um, and, and it's also easy it's also pretty easy reading so professor thanks a lot for your time and uh, I wish you best of luck with with your future work and your and your class. Um, Thank and, you, Philip. You've asked all the right questions and raised the right issues, and it's been a pleasure to uh, talk with you about this. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. And in closing, I'd like to add one more thought here, which is that modern neuroscience is really based upon materialism and therefore they have to start with the brain as being the source of what we call the mind and I think it might be helpful if we take a different perspective on this and view the brain the physical three-dimensional thing that we know as the brain as the outcome or actually a three-dimensional reflection 
as an animation of what we know as the mind. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 